Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Daniel. Some people call me Dinko. I am uh, the Artesia campus pastor, and it's always such a blessing and uh, privilege to bring the Word of God here to the Fulton campus, and always good to see uh, so many of your faces. As you saw in that video bumper, we are beginning a new series in the book of James, and uh, let's go right to it. We're going to turn to the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. You can turn there in your Bibles, and we also have it projected for you on the screen. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. I'll read this for us. Let's give our attention and reverence, for this is the reading of God's Word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word. Can I lead us in a quick word of prayer? Let's ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, as we look deeply into your word this morning, and as we consider the heavy topic of trials of many kinds, of various kinds, Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would do the ministry of applying your word to the hearts of your people. Would your Holy Spirit do the work of opening eyes and hearts to rest and hope and trust in Jesus all the more? Would your Holy Spirit search our hearts and apply to us that which we need, not by the might or power of man, but by your Spirit's power? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this series in the uh, book of James, And also, just a quick little reminder, a little announcement. Uh, This Sunday, Pastor Harold is speaking at Artesia. I'm here at Fullerton. So the following Sunday, it will be flipped. So if you're here today at the Fullerton campus, please make sure to come back to the Fullerton campus next week, or you will hear the exact same sermon again. Uh, Just a a quick reminder. But as we start in the book of James, uh, at both Artesia and Fullerton, we find that one of the questions, one of the themes that arises in in the book of James is, If you have encountered God through real faith, what will your life look like? In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus, what difference does it actually make in your life practically right now? James is a very practical book. Uh, it, It has often been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament even. And the question is, when Jesus comes into our lives, when we put our faith in Christ... Practically, what difference does it make? And in our passage today, in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, we see that faith in Jesus makes us steadfast, even in the midst of trials. And James would actually go as far as to say, especially in the midst of trials, faith in Jesus makes us steadfast. It makes us steadfast. Notice that James doesn't say here, bear trials. Endure trials. 
he says something crazy. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face various trials of various kinds. It's audacious. The audience of James, they were going through some things. They were going through poverty, some of them extreme poverty. They were going through religious persecution. They were being hurt, jailed, discriminated because of their faith. And James says, it's not just those things. Of all kinds, of various kinds, when you experience these things, count it as joy. And obviously the Bible isn't telling us that we can't be sad and that we shouldn't grieve or we shouldn't have low points in our lives because we all do and that's what makes us human beings. And notice here, James isn't saying you should feel joy when you experience these trials. But he says, count it as joy. Count it, consider it as joy, even if it feels painful, even if it's not pleasant, even if it feels like the opposite of joy, which trials in life always do. But count it, consider it as joy, because God is adding something to your life. He is adding to your character. He is adding to your compassion. And specifically here, he is adding steadfastness. Steadfastness, the way it's used here in James uh, is synonymous with endurance and perseverance. When James talks about being made perfect and complete, he's getting at this idea of making it all the way to the end, right? Whenever you see in the Bible this word per- perfect, complete, I don't want you to feel stressed out if, well, God is asking me to be perfect right now. God is asking me to be complete right now. No, of course not. None of us are perfect in this side of, on this side of heaven. But the idea of perfection and completion is this idea of God carrying us to the end. And so steadfastness is this idea of the ability to make it to the end. It's not about being so strong, holding your head up so high. But it simply means making it to the end. Because of your faith in Jesus. Steadfastness is so important for this life. That's why we love uh, the Rocky movies. right? That's why, I mean, I don't, know, maybe, I don't know if the younger generation ever watches the Rocky movies. But that's why at least some of us love the Rocky movies. He's like the epitome of steadfastness and endurance and perseverance. You know, he's not the strongest. He's not the fastest. He's, not the, he's certainly not the smartest. Uh, but... He makes it to the end every time. And we love that about him. Only thing about Rocky Balboa is, uh, you have to know this about him, is he's not real. Right? He's not a real person. He's a fictional character in a movie series. Most of us aren't like that. And even if Rocky was a real person, we would just probably say, well, that's just naturally what he's like. That's just his characteristic. That's, that's how he was born, maybe. But I'm not like Rocky, I don't know, I think, I think probably if, if I could guess, most of us aren't naturally so steadfast. Most of us here, myself included, are prone to want to give up. Especially when the pains of life come, and they do come. But what James is telling us today is that in Christ, when our faith is in Christ, more and more there is a steadfastness to be gained. Not because you're like that naturally. Not because we're so strong or so smart. But because of Jesus. I know there are many of us in this congregation faced with very real trials right now. 
our staff, our pastors, uh, we, we gather every week and we pray for various people of our ministry. There's a list of people we are praying for as they go through various trials, as well as joys as well. And it's very clear to us that we are facing many trials, that many of us are hurting, that our marriages are hurting, that we have loved ones who are hurting, our health is hurting. And James is telling us today that because of your faith in Christ, not that it will all be easy, not that because of your faith in Christ, you're just going to be able to smile through it all, that things will but get better really fast. No, James is telling us, because of your faith in Christ, you can be steadfast. You can make it to the end. James also gives us a con- contrasting picture of the one who doubts in our passage. He says, the one who doubts in verse 6 is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In verse 8, he says, the one who, about the same person, the doubter, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew or the Bible, for that matter, that well to know that doubt and wavering are indeed con- contrasts to faith and steadfastness. But one thing I want to be clear about for all of us here is that doubt, doubt doesn't simply mean that sometimes your faith is weak or small. Right, that's, all of us in this room have moments where our faith feels small. Our faith feels weak. And I would say, especially in the midst of very real pains, very real sufferings and trials, there's going to be those moments where our faith just feels so weak, where we even question perhaps God's goodness or God's love even. Sometimes our faith will be small. Sometimes it will be weak. But a weak and small faith in a big and strong God is still big enough. I want to be clear about that. Even as we talk about what James is talking about when he talks to the doubters and the double-minded. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, uh, where he talks about how it's not about the strength of our faith so much as the object of our faith. He says, if you're falling off a cliff... And as you're falling to your impending doom, you see this branch sticking out from the side of the cliff. You might think, you might very well know that branch is so strong. I know that branch is so strong. It's nice and thick. And if I grab it, I'll be okay. But as you're falling, you could think that and know that and believe that. But if you don't grab that branch, you will still die. On the other hand, you might be thinking as you're falling... I don't know if that branch is strong enough. I just, I'm not that sure. Maybe it will hold me up. Maybe it won't. But at the end of the day, what matters is that you grab it and that it is indeed strong enough. And if it is strong enough, even if you weren't so sure about it, you were, you were, your faith in that branch was weak. As long as you grab it and it is strong enough, you will be saved. And the idea is, it's not so much the strength and the manner of the faith, but the object. Even a small faith in a big God is big enough. Please know that. Please know that God is big enough. So what is the doubter then? What is this doubting here? 
When, when James says, the one who doubts is like a wave. And specifically when he says, the doubter is double-minded. It shows us something about the nature of the doubting he's talking about. In fact, in the Greek, that word doubt literally means to dispute with oneself. It's this unanchored, unsettled position. When it comes to the things of Jesus and faith in Jesus, things are still left unsettled. Ultimately, doubting here means you haven't actually truly, fully put your faith in Christ. You haven't actually grabbed that branch. You've only dabbled. That's what it means to be double-minded and doubting here. And James says this not to condemn, not to guilt trip, but to warn. To help his hearers be sober-minded. If we are content to be wavering and doubting and unsettled in who Christ is and who Christ is in my life and for me, James is saying, be careful because when the trials and the storms and the waves do come, you will not have a ground to stand on. When those waves come, you will just be tossed around every which way, unstable unanchored. But for those who have put their faith in Christ, even if it's a weak and small faith at times, something greater happens. Something different happens. In verse 3 of our text, we read this already, but it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When the trials come, there is a testing of your faith. But please know this. Most of us here, you know, when you think of testing, you think of school. When you think of school, you think of grades. When you think of grades, you think of failing. It's not fun. But the word testing here is actually not a word that invokes uh, passing or failing or being graded or being evaluated. But the word testing here is actually a word that invokes the imagery of uh, pr- refining precious metals. You've probably seen it in other parts of the Bible, like in First Peter, that This testing is is like putting gold or silver in the fire to purify the gold and silver. As If if you grew up in the 90s at all, you probably sang a song, and and you were in the church, you sang a song called Refiner's Fire. Purify the dross, burn away the dross. And that's the exact same idea here in the word testing, that it is a sharpening of your faith. Not trying to prove if you have faith or don't have faith. It's not trying to prove if you're going to pass or fail this Jesus test. But it's simply saying, with, if your faith is in Christ, even if it's a small faith, even if it's like a mustard seed, like Jesus says to his disciples, you will be refined. You will be sharpened. You will gain a clarity. You will gain a wisdom, even, that you didn't have before. We are often distracted and dulled in our culture today. Our culture is very good at distracting us from the realities of life and even the realities of suffering and even the realities of death. We're really good at it, at distracting ourselves away from it with pleasures and comforts and, 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 and nice things, good food. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but there is that danger of we become fools. 
And when trials come with faith in Christ, we even become wise. It's not an accident that after James says that crazy thing, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, he actually goes right on to saying, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. It may seem perhaps like an abrupt transition. Ask God for wisdom. But suffering and wisdom are certainly not unrelated. It takes suffering sometimes to gain a special kind of wisdom. I love what Oscar Romero once said. He was an archbishop who dedicated his ministry to caring for the poor in extreme poverty in El Salvador. And he was even assassinated ultimately because of this focus on the poor. And he said this, There are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. I love that. There are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. There is a special kind of vision and wisdom and clarity to be gained when those eyes had tears pass through them. I think the scriptures say something very similar in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. It's a passage sometimes you hear at funerals. It says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher James, your preacher before you now, their point is not to say, well, as Christians, we're just, we're just supposed to be sad and somber all the time. No, of course not. The point is not, also, it's not on the flip side, well, you can never have a good time, you can never laugh. But the point indeed is this, that there is a sober-mindedness to be had about life. There is a wisdom to be had about life where we see things clearly. We see things clearly about what really matters, what has eternal worth. And what is only temporary and passing. And a lot of times it takes trials to make that clearer for us. There's much wisdom to be gained in tears. And whether it's personal things, very deep and painful things in life. Or even things that are things happening in the world. The sudden passing of Kobe Bryant. The, the escalation of coronavirus to a global health emergency. Whatever it may be, it causes us to recognize, as Ecclesiastes tells us, that the house of mourning is the end of all mankind. And as somber of a reality that is, it is very unwise to ignore that reality. We will all mourn, and we will all be mourned one day. Think about the people that Jesus healed in his ministry. He heals a lot of people as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the Gospels. You see him healing people who have all sorts of different afflictions. And Think about these people that he healed. People he even resurrected from death, like Lazarus. They still all had pain in their lifetimes. They still would go on to suffer 
in their lifetimes. And they would even all eventually die in their lifetimes. People who experienced miracles still went to the house of mourning. And it's not because God's love failed them. It's not because God wasn't there anymore. But because this is the end of all mankind. Because we live in a fallen world brought down by sin. Because we live in a world that is not as it should be. That's why they would still go on to have pain and trials and death. Jesus healed these people, of course, because he loved them and cared for them. But why did he heal people knowing that they would still get sick eventually? They would still die eventually. They would still hurt eventually. Because these were glimpses. These were foretastes of what Jesus would do once and for all when he makes all things new upon his second coming. Please know this. Jesus does not enter our lives. Jesus did not heal these people in his ministry. He does not heal us now simply to get rid of all the pain and sorrow of life. He never promised that. I'm just going to get rid of it all in your lifetime now. But what he does do is he enters into our lives. He grants us healing from the heart. And even in our lifetimes, different kinds of healing and different kinds of ministry that he does for you and for me. He does it not to rid all of the pain and sorrow of this life, but to cause us to endure to the end, even in the midst of the pain and sorrow of this life. The very real pain and sorrow of this life. And that pain and that sorrow, it throws it right into our face that all is not as it should be. That this is not the only life. That there is a greater life to come. That we have not yet reached our final destination. I love, I think C.S. Lewis said it best. He wrote, we can ignore even pleasure. We can ignore even pleasure. Isn't that so true? When you have a pleasurable time, you go, to, you go on vacation, wherever you like to go on vacation. You, you go to Disneyland, whatever it may be. Those pleasures afterwards are so quickly forgotten. You can even ignore those pleasures. They don't really last. Pleasure can even be ignored. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is just the theory that I have. So this is not the word of God. But you, you know that if you, if you know me at all, you know I'm a big fan of MMA, mixed martial arts, the UFC, whatever. And I find that so many fighters are religious. So not all of them, but so many of them. And I, and I do believe they are genuinely religious. And my theory is it's because they're always getting punched and kicked in the face. Like that's their life. That's their job. And there's this, you got to think about it, right? If you're getting punched and kicked your whole life, every day, almost every day, it's going to make you realize something about life, right? It's going to make you a little bit wiser about your neediness, you know, so many people uh, who oppose religion, you've probably heard this so many times from other people. You've heard probably this saying, religion is a crutch. Religion is a crutch. Uh, a very famous quarterback uh, recently said that on a podcast recently, and it made waves. 
not in like the real news, but internet news. Religion is a crutch. And, and my thing is, what's wrong with that? What's so wrong? How, is that like some kind of strong argument against religion? What's wrong with religion being a crutch? Doesn't everyone have a crutch? Don't we all turn to some kind of crutch, especially when the troubles and trials and sufferings and pain come? Don't we all turn to something? If you're not turning to God, you're turning to something, right? You're turning to work, becoming a workaholic. You're turning to money, the, the safety and comfort of money. You're turning to romance. Maybe you're turning to substances. Maybe you're turning to experiences. But we all turn to something. We all have a crutch. But to me, the bigger mistake is thinking that all we need is a crutch. No, for, for the Christian, for you and me, Jesus is not just a crutch. Jesus is the whole life support system. The things of this world, romance, money, power, experiences, those things can only be a crutch at best. But here's the thing about Christians. Here's what makes them different. It's not because they're better. It's not because they're stronger. It's not because they're smarter. It's not because they're more attractive. Here's the only thing that makes Christians different. They know how needy they are. They are utterly needy. They don't just say, I need a crutch. Jesus is my, I need some help here and there when I'm limping along in life. Sometimes, Jesus, I need you to come and just help me along. No, we're saying, Jesus, I need you to hold me completely. I need you to cover me, every part of me. I don't need a crutch. I need life support. I need someone to hold me so fast and so securely and not waver as he does it. Even as the whole world and everything around me wavers. And I love that James goes on to say in this chapter, in James chapter 1, after talking about all the trials we go through and even all the, as he warns against doubting and wavering like the waves of the sea, he goes on to say in James chapter 1 verse 17, that God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is our Father of lights, with whom there is no change. He is not like the shifting shadows. He is not like the waves. He does not waver. There's an important theological term here. It simply means God does not change. The immutability of God. It's a big word, but it's an important word, especially as we consider going through the trials of life, that God does not change. And logically connected to this doctrine of the immutability of God is the next one, impassibility of God. This idea that God does not suffer. As the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, God is without passions. In other words, it doesn't mean that uh, God has no feelings, that he's emotionless. But it does mean God is not overwhelmed by his feelings and emotions and the things of this life. God is never surprised. God is never caught off guard. Like Pastor Daniel Penn shared with us, God is never shocked. Even when we're shocked so many times in our lives. And some people don't like this doctrine. They don't like the impassibility of God. They, make, they feel like it makes God seem like distant and unapproachable. But I love this doctrine. I love this doctrine, especially when I'm overwhelmed. I need God to not be overwhelmed. I need God to hold me fast and not be the one that's also not sure what's going on and not, not understanding why these things happened. 
This is kind of a funny story, but my family, we went on a trip to a, a, a tropical island several years ago, and we were on this bus. And the bus driver, you know, he probably was doing this for like decades, tr- uh, transporting tourists around this island. And he was driving like it was nothing. He was laughing and talking to the people behind him, even singing a song sometimes. He was just driving, and it was, it was so easy for him. But the path was not easy. The road was so treacherous. Like, there were all these sharp turns he was making. There were these narrow alleys he had to go through. We thought the, you know, the side mirrors would pop off. And the funniest part is while he's driving like this, chatting away, laughing, there was a middle-aged man in the back. And he was so verbal in his fear. He was making all these noises. Like, whoa, Like, every time there was a turn, he'd go, whoa, whoa, whoa. He would, like, grab his chair. And it was so humorous. But I felt it, too. I was like, oh, yeah, these are some really tight, fast turns that he's making. But because this man was so scared, we all just kind of laughed about it. But could you imagine if the driver himself was making those sounds? That would be an entirely different experience. If the driver was going, whoa, 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 as every time he turned and he sounded so scared and he would look so shocked, we, would, we wouldn't make it. We would jump out the window of that bus. We wouldn't stay in there. We wouldn't want to be in there. And of course, the idea is God is never, never worried or afraid, even when we are so filled with so many anxieties, so many stresses, so many pains, and so many sorrows. The impassibility of God is such a comfort. It's such a comfort as we experience the trials of life. And as we see the ways that this life and this world is so not as it's supposed to be, it's so not as it should be, you know something else actually happens. We see how messed up life can be. Senseless things happening. Senseless people getting hurt, getting sick. Senseless acts of evil, betrayal. But as we know this and come to know this more and more, we also see something else. As we experience the trials of life, we don't just see that the world is not as it should be and that life is not as it should be and the people out there are not as they should be. But we also start to see, I am not as I should be. I think a lot of times in the trials of life, we see our sin. We see our hearts. We see the ways we fall short. We see we have this problem that we can't fix, we can't cleanse, we can't control. And the wonderful good news we see throughout the scriptures is that Jesus would come not only to be the comforter in the midst of our trials, but he would come to be the savior in the midst of our sin. And even on top of that, he would come to be our suffering savior. You know, you see those big theological words up there. And when you think about Jesus, you see suddenly that the immutable God, the one who cannot change, would take on flesh. That sounds like a little bit of a change to me. You see that this impassable God who cannot suffer would suffer on a cross. To save sinners like you and me. And we even see God by definition who is eternal, immortal. He would face death ultimately on that cross. In Jesus we see this this 
theology is turned upside down even. As Jesus' body is broken on the cross, theology is broken in some ways. It's hard to understand. It's a mystery. This God-man who would be our Savior, the immutable who would take on flesh, the impassable who would take on suffering, the immortal who would take on death, and he would do that so that he would save sinners and he would bring ultimately this end to this journey to be steadfast for. He would go to that cross. He would live the perfect life, die the death we deserve, and rise again in his resurrection to give us an end to be steadfast for. To give us an end where there is no cancer, there is no tears, there is no depression, there is no relational fallout. This is the one in whom we put our faith. Whether it's a weak, small faith, or whether it's a strong, big faith. Whatever season you're in, whatever circumstances you're in. If this is indeed the one in whom you've placed your faith the God-man Jesus, the one who would be our suffering Savior. Even in trials, you will have this steadfastness that this world can never give you. And as I mentioned, it's not some holding your head up high, puffing out your chest kind of strength, but it's just the ability to make it to the end because you have this firm foundation in Jesus. As we close, just three quick things, three quick practical outcomes of what happens when faith makes us steadfast especially in the midst of trials here's the first one first we can actually be still and know that god is god like psalm 46 tells us when faith has made when faith in jesus specifically has made us steadfast we can finally be still as We can finally, unlike the waves and the crashing that happens at the ocean, the doubter, the double-minded, we actually can have an anchor for our soul. And it won't make you perfectly still every day of your life and every moment, but there will be a stillness to be had. And it's not just a stillness where you just do nothing, but it's a stillness before God where you can say, I don't understand a thing that's happening. I don't get it. It's chaos. It's crazy. I, I can barely get my footing. But I know you're God. You are God. You are the Father of lights who does not change and who holds me fast. And you can start to be still. Very much related to that. Number two, we can start to move from the question of why to what now. We can move from the question of why to what now. There's this great book called Becoming Resilient by a counselor named Donna Gibbs. And she writes this. Focusing on answering this question of why is not likely to bring the closure we might be hoping for. Shifting from a destructive why to a healing what now will help you to become unstuck. You know, that question of why is so natural, right? That's the first question that we will always ask. When trials come, it's, it's so natural. If I asked you, what's the first question you ask when trials come? It's going to be why. But as we remain still before God, and it's okay to be still. It's okay to not have to frantically figure everything out. We can actually move on to what now? Because at the end of the day, you don't need an explanation 
to gain peace. Right? In fact, if someone was trying to comfort you in the, in the middle of your pain and trials, you don't want them to come to you and just be like, here's why this is happening. And let me tell you. Let me tell you why you're suffering the way you are. A, B, and C. And they give you this airtight argument for why you're suffering. We don't need that. We don't want that. In fact, the Bible, specifically in Job, there's a name for that. They're called miserable comforters. The people who come and just try to explain suffering away. Sometimes the why, we won't find out on this side of heaven. But the reality is we don't need why. Why isn't going to give us peace. God is going to give us peace. The presence of our Heavenly Father, His fatherly care for you, is going to give you the peace you need. Not the explanations. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, I love this. I didn't make up this this phrase. We become generous with our tears. We become generous with our tears. There's a great quote from a pastor in Atlanta named John Anwichekwa. And here's what he writes. I have it projected for you as well. He writes this. Some lessons can be learned in a classroom, but responding to suffering isn't one of them. This lesson is learned and relearned in the crucible. Suffering doesn't necessarily give you better words. It only makes you more generous with your tears. I love that. It makes you more generous with your tears. Uh, Yesterday at our vision conference, we had a great, we had so many great speakers. It was such a great, great time for us. But there was one workshop specifically about shepherding one another in the midst of grief and loss. And there was a great question that was asked by someone in the audience. He said, what what were some things that stood out to you that were particularly special when it came to like how someone comforted you in the midst of your grief when you've lost a loved one? And I love what the response was. Someone said, it was never the words. It was never like some great advice. It was never some, some wise saying. It wasn't that perfect Bible verse that just perfectly addresses my pain. He said, it was the people that cried with us. They just stood by us and they cried with us. Some people that we didn't even really know that well but they would come and they would just cry with us. And that made all the difference. And is that not being still and knowing that he is God together? When, when people are experiencing pain and, and sorrow, and as, as we all inevitably do, to simply say, I have no words, but I will be still with you and come to God with you and know that he is God with you without knowing the whys and the hows. But we will share our tears. Is that not what it means to be steadfast together? We're not called to be steadfast on our own, just these strong lone rangers. But we are called to be steadfast together, to be generous with our tears. You know, I've I've been on our pastoral staff now since 2010 and I can tell you, from 2010, and I'm sure from before that too, Christ Central has faced many trials. I don't even want to list them or try to catalog them somehow. It won't do it justice. We have faced so many trials as a church. And of course, we are facing so many trials even now, many of our members. And the beautiful thing about your church 
as, as I consider the decade plus of, of different trials we've gone through. It's not how strong we are. It's not how smart we are when we're in the trials. It's not how well we bounce back. The beautiful thing about Christ Central is how well we wept together. It's how well we stood by one another. How well you stood by each other in those moments. And I think that makes all the difference. That's what it means to be steadfast. That's what it means to even count it as all joy. That we do this together. We, we put our faith in our immutable, impassable God together. And we rest in the fact that Christ indeed suffered for us and with us so that one day there would be no more suffering. So that one day there would be nothing to be steadfast for. We need to be steadfast now, but be encouraged, brothers and sisters. One day there will be a day when you don't need to be steadfast because we'll be face to face with our Savior. And until that day, would we be generous with our tears? Would we be steadfast not because we're strong, but because we have a strong branch in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come needy. We come weak. We come with sometimes, a lot of times, small faith. But Lord, as the disciples cried out to you, we cry out together, increase our faith. Remind us again and again of the strength of our Savior, of the hope we have in Jesus. Or the fact that you did not leave us alone in the midst of all the trials and troubles of this life, in the midst of all the ways in which our world is not as it should be. But you came. You took on flesh. You went to the cross. And you rose again to give us new life. Lord, would you keep us steadfast? Lord, we confess sometimes we're going to be crawling through. Sometimes we're going to be barely making it. But we ask that you would keep us steadfast, bring us to completion more and more every day because our faith is in Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.